Welcome to another interview on the An African's Queen podcast. My name is Karon Marguerite and I'm an emotional intelligence coach and management consultant. Today I have with me a very special lady, Dr. Ifunanya Igwezi. <laughs> Did I get that right? Yeah, that's Beautiful, thank you. You are a founder and a lead educator at Pregify, and this is a fast-growing health tech startup, but you're offering mobile antenatal, maternal and childcare services to career women and young female professionals, but you're also an advocate for healthcare services, you're an author, and being a social entrepreneur, I imagine that you are also involved in lots of things in the community. Welcome to my podcast today. How are you? Thank you so much. I am doing fine. I hope you are good. I am. I am. I know it's morning there for you and evening for me here in Australia. So I'm very grateful for this being the start of your day. I'm wondering... Tell us a little bit about you. What's your story? Okay, thank you very much for having me here and for the opportunity. So I I am Ifnaya Igweze and uh, I'm from Nigeria, the eastern part of Nigeria, Anambra State to be precise. I, I spent all my life, I spent most of my life in the village, in my small village, in Enugu, in Anambra State, Nigeria. I am the sixth child out of eight and the, um, the fourth girl. So I, I grew up with my parents, unlike most of my siblings. And my dad is a tailor. My mom is a, seamstress, a seamstress. And then she does some other um, business like selling of firewood, Send of Bancanel and those other, you know, those things that people do to survive while we're in the village. So just like every other kid in my community, my small village, we attended local nursery school, was not in nursery school in court, but we call it um, Mtakara then. So it just a, a kind of a crash organized by one of the women in the village and then maybe probably sponsored by the church just for the woman to come, keep us there while the, our mothers are out there in the markets and all that. So from there, I moved to my primary school, which is still within my town, Arabica Central School, Enugu. It's a government-owned school. Actually, the government took it from the Anglican church. And then, so it's a government-owned primary school then. So I think my primary school is even though it's a local school, it gave me one of the good foundations I had in education because I experienced quality teachers. And so a certain degree quality education that is obtainable around us might not be the best, but it gave me a good foundation. From there, I moved to my secondary school, Idege Secondary School, still in my town. So I lived my life literally in my town. <laughs> so my, my secondary school is owned by the government, so it was all girls' school. So it was also a good experience for me because it gave me the freedom to be myself. 
I, I was the debate leader. I played football. I was involved in sports. I was involved in quiz activities. You know, you, you may not see me being that always um, being in the library or reading, but at the end of the day, I would come top in my class. So, <laughs> so I don't, I don't really spend all my time reading. So I do my sports, I go for my debates, I do my extracurricular activities, but I still know a way to put in the effort in my education and come out very well. So while I was in my community secondary school, in my junior secondary school three, which from where you're supposed to transition to the senior secondary school, as we do in Nigeria here. One of the students that was ahead of me, who I had engaged in a debate previously, got admission into a special science school. And she was so, everybody revered her like, oh my God, you are going to Lorito. Wow, do you know how many people that are lucky to be there? You need to be very intelligent. And while other students were like were admiring her and wishing to be like her, I put in the work. I told myself, I am going to Lorito. But, <laughs> but at that point, I didn't know how it's going to be possible because I came from a very poor background. Like even the school that I was in then. The school fees were literally something that you can just look back at now and just laugh. Why you were not able to even afford that? But then look at me, aspiring to go to Lorito Special Science, and it's even a boarding house. So the, the financial burden is going to, you know, intensify, and I don't even know where it's going to come from. But I was determined. So I called a few of my friends and told them, "See, Lorito, I've heard that Lorito is a very good school, and we need to be there." So the six of us, we stay saving our money. We stop entering bags to school. We, we start saving our transport money. So we trek to school and trust me, you don't want to know the distance. And then we, we save from the money from our lunch. And then, so we didn't even make this known to our teachers, to our parents. We were just doing this within us. And then we, the day our money was completed, we trekked from my town to another town called Abagra to the local government to purchase the form for the special science school so that we could write the exam. During the day of the exam, we went for the exam and then we wrote the exam. The exam was quite tough because compared to the standard of education outside my school, my secondary school did not have that high standard compared to what is obtainable outside, but that's what we could afford. So we read the exam and out of the six of us, it was just my cousin and I that passed the exam and we posted to, you know, there, there are several special schools in the, in the state. So you need to do very well if you want to go to Lorito because Lorito is like a first choice. And when they cut off the mark, the other people move to the second choice and then to the tours. And luckily for all, the two of us was posted to Lorito Special Science School, and that's it. And <laughs> it, was, it was a dream come true. And even though I didn't know how the finance or anything is going to come up for, I felt so fulfilled and I was so happy. Then I started calling my brothers. I told them I want to change my school. And they were like, I don't to change your school. You are doing well here. You are taking first position. I said, because I'm always taking first position. I feel like I'm not doing much. I need to go where I'm going to be challenged. And I heard that Lorito is a very good school. That's what I want to change. Then through the help of my brothers, I was we were able to raise money because before you enter Lorito, you must buy the whole textbooks. They don't spare anyone. And 
So we made preparation and then I went back to Loreto. On the day of registration, they moved me, my cousin, my friend that was in other school that passed, the four of us, my teacher's daughter also. So we were in the same vehicle from the center and conveyed us to Loreto. So during the registration, I almost got kicked out because my textbook were not completed. And the woman told me, you know, you have to go back until you buy it. And it was the English teacher who I later found out was a very tough woman. But then something, she saw something in my box. She saw my Oxford dictionary and it didn't have the regular cover like the other ones you got in the market. So it picked her interest and she still reading it. And she saw that this Oxford dictionary was given to me because I participated in a essay and quiz competition that was organized for both junior and secondary students in my former school. And I came second, just a little mark below the person that came first, who was in senior secondary three, the topmost class. And I was just in junior secondary three then. So, and the, the gift was given to me by the Federation of and, um, the, my town students in the University of Nigeria and Soka. They were the one that organized it. So she was like, ah, this one must be very bright though. So, okay, see, because of this dictionary, I'm going to leave you, tell your parents to get this book when they are coming for the next visiting day. Okay, I'm going to leave you just because of this. So that's how I completed my registration and then we started. Lorito was the best decision, I've, one of the best decisions, I made, academic decisions I've ever made. The audacity <laughs> was much. And Lorito gave me the right exposure. When you come to Lorito, you see students who have been taking first position in A1 schools, you know, and you know that this place is not a place to relax or to play. Like you really need to keep your acts together if you want to get it done. The competition was so high. The 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 you may be in page four of your physics test and some people have already gone half of it and they know what they have read. It's not about the speed, like they actually know what they have read. So it was really a, a moment of, and if Naya, you can't go back to the village, you need to be here. And if you fail, you are going to go out. So I had to put in the work. And I, of course, I was there in the sports and uh, I was the band leader. I became the college student, president. And so even though the academic environment was very tough, it didn't deter me from doing other things that I really love doing and others. So from there, my friend and I were like, okay, we want to be medical doctors and we're going to write job and move to the school. But at this point, everyone is talking about the university. Who is going to pay the tuition for me? Like we are still struggling to afford where I am now. So I started making plans. What am I going to do? Then one day I came home from the boarding house and I thought to myself, why not just go out there and ask for help from people that you think that are doing well in the society, in your village? At least you go to church, you see them make donations. And I feel like, I think these people might be able to help me. If I tell them, show them my results, tell them that I want to be a medical doctor, which is a big deal in my village. And then so, I didn't even to my parents, so I moved out. And so I went to this man and I went with my sister. So I explained to him everything and I want to be a medical doctor, but I need funding. The man said, well, you know, one person cannot do what is involved in medicine, but just get the admission first. We will know what we are going to do about it. But you know this thing about 
about God, I'm not like I'm used to tell my story the way it is. You know this thing about God. When you are planning something, you don't know whether what he is also, he also have in stock for you. So while I was moving around trying to get um, people to help me when I get admission, all of from nowhere, people came to my house, knocked in the middle of the night. One early morning, I went to church with my mom. Then we came back. It was a Saturday. And then they said, one man from my village wants to see me and my mom. Now, and this man is a rich man. The only time we go to his house is to fetch water or do something, but he has boundary with my primary school. So we prepared and then we got to the house. They introduced us as, then I said, I chief, this is the girl that we want to bring to you for scholarship. And she's the one that we are recommending. And I'm like, how? So they now told me that <laughs> while, while some men were in his house the previous night, he mentioned that he wants to sponsor someone to study medicine because he really needs someone to study medicine from a village. And they said, ah, you remember there's a girl that we wanted to give scholarship in the village when she took second position in the quiz competition, but something came up and we didn't give it to her. Let's recommend that she's really intelligent. You know, these men, they had their own children and they could have recommended them, but they remembered me and recommended me. So when I came, he asked me, what do you want to study? I said, medicine. I was preparing for my wife then, and my West African certificate exam that will qualify you to enter the uh, university. So he asked, he told me, make sure that you make that exam in A's. Okay? I said, okay. So from that moment, he took me back to my secondary school, paid off my YAC fee, my second um, term and taught them school fees, and that was how it all started. And I, I wrote my jam. I didn't get admission that first year. So I wrote jam the second year. And then I got admission to study medicine. And he started sponsoring me in school. So that's a, that was how I got, I, I got sponsorship to study medicine. And in medical school, in this kind of situation, nobody needs to advise you to, <laughs> to do your best because people That are, is such... An amazing story. Thank you for sharing. I could never have imagined such an incredible way to start the podcast, but what an inspiration you are to future generations and testament to just what hard work will achieve. But I think also the the inspiration you originally got and then the collaboration, working with five of your friends to all to achieve a common goal. I mean, that's such a fantastic thing to do, but you became a team and you encouraged each other and supported each other. And even though, you know, yourself and one other from that group, if I'm not mistaken, made it through, I well imagine the others are not worse off for the lessons that they learn from that experience. Wow. Thank you for sharing. That is Fantastic. I bet you still have an amazing relationship with that sponsor as well. I'm sure he's very, very proud of the doctor you've become and the work that you're doing with Pregify. Tell us what led you to establish your business. Okay, so um, when I was in the my clinical in the clinical part of my studies in the College of Medicine, I started having experiences 
because I am more of a clinical student than someone that reads theory. So you're going to find me more in the emergency rooms and in the world, the labor rooms, the children emergencies, the ICU. So it exposed me to seeing what was happening in the hospital. I see women coming in, coming down with avoidable complications in pregnancy. I see babies in ICUs, in um, children, children emergency, suffering from things that were avoidable. So it triggered me a kind of, because I lost my younger brother um, when he was mm. almost one, so vomiting and diarrhea. My parents didn't know any better then. So when I um, said study myself, I found out that this thing was actually very preventable. So something that could have been avoided. So from there, I still looking for a way to you know help out. Since I believe that health education is going to go a long a long way to helping um, these women and saving more of their lives and their kids. And so this training came up then by International Federation of Medical Students of African Region in Abuja. And we needed to pay to attend the trade workshop in Abuja. I was in Abraste. So I, I, I rallied that around and got the money and then I paid. Some of my colleagues were like, oh, I will pay. People should bring this money to do something meaningful because to them, they didn't really understand what I was going for. There's some other students too also registered. And during the workshop, I saw that most of our facilitators were medical students. And I, I kept asking myself, how did they go this far as medical students? I thought we were just in school to read. Why, what is happening out there? There is thing, something that is happening out there. So I made friends with them, followed them on social media, stayed being active on social media, learned things they were doing. And then during the workshop, it was an eye-opener for me. So when I came back to school, I called my president, my student president, and told him, say, I want to start a peer education trainers club in the school so that we can train volunteers on what I've learned in Abuja. And then we can go into the community and start impacting lives. And that was exactly what I did. So wow. we established the peer education trainers club, and we still going to schools, communities, um, hosted International Day of the Girl Child, World Aids Day 2017, and then it was a fantastic experience for me. Even though I was in my penultimate class then, I utilized that period to do something beautiful for my school. So after I left school, during my final days in school, another pro program, which was an exchange program, came up in Rwanda, and it was also capital intensive, but through the help of my then boyfriend, who is my husband now, he was able to sponsor me to, to go there because he believed that whatever I said I would do must be very important to my career. So he sponsored me, both the um, registration, the flight, and everything. So I went for that three weeks um, exchange program in Rwanda, and it was another experience because I get to see things from different perspectives, students from Brazil, Italy, Romania, Ghana, like some other um, countries, and we exchanged ideas and I experienced Rwanda too. So when I came back, because I had graduated then, I didn't see another organization to join, which looking back now, maybe due to my naiveness or there were people were not documenting what they do in the society online in the space where you could find them. So I wasn't able to find 
with who to join, who to you know volunteer for. So I started my own organization, Live Modern Child Initiative, and um, some of my colleagues volunteered for my organization and some other people. So we start going into communities. Like when I look back on those um, outings, some of these communities are places that I may not even go now due to the insecurity in Anambas because they were really deep, deep. Then we go to schools, we, we train um, girls on sexuality education, entrepreneurship, we demonstrate for them. Then we go to villages and train women on how, about pregnant, how to take care of their baby. So we go with equipment to also show them practicals, you know, during their meetings. And it was a fantastic experience for me. So for me then, it was about, you know, impacting the underserved community. Then I got married and I moved to Lagos State, Nigeria in 2020 during the pandemic. So I was pregnant then too. When I came to Lagos, um, initially I was not working because I was pregnant and I'm also asthmatic. So I didn't want to expose myself because of that. Then after my delivery, I got a job and something happened because I already had interest in pregnant women and that area. So I was in charge of antenatal teachings where I was working under supervision. So during that period, something happened. There's this lady that whenever she comes for antenatal, before you could even speak to her for two minutes, she has made calls, she has made calls, directing her truck and her drivers, coordinating her business. And I asked her, Ma, please, can we just examine you and your baby? She'd be like, doctor, wait, wait, I need to do something. So she was so deep down in her business. Everything was business. So she doesn't even come for accidental often. So the day you even see her, you just manage to you know, do everything that you need to do. And that pregnancy was very stressful and challenging for her. Then another experience was a client who we don't even see at all. She may just come once and then she vanishes. She vanished. And then all of a sudden she came in at 38 weeks. So even if you call her on phone or do anything, she'll tell you I'm coming. Okay, I'll come. I'll come. And she will not show up. Then at 38 weeks, she was rushed to the hospital. She was bleeding. And then she was, she had, she, the baby had died. She had a brochure placenta. She had a potential in pregnancy that was not diagnosed because she was not showing up in the hospital. She was busy with her business. So she had surgery. The baby was removed, but the baby was already dead. And then we started managing her hypertension. So these two experiences and some other ones I may not share because I want to time got me thinking, is there something needs to be done? Because women are no longer the kitchen bearers. Women are taking up responsibilities in the social economic space. Women are taking up uh, career moves. Women are doing well in businesses, and we need to do something to help them to live, something to help them to keep their career while raising their own family. Because when you ask some of my colleagues, they will tell you, ah, marriage, I beg, way to marriage and childbearing is not part of their plan now until they get to a certain level in their career. This is so because they have not seen that level of provision that can support them while they are also pursuing their career. And nobody wants to lose what they have built over the years. So in 2022... There's so much... I'll, I'll pause you there. There is so much truth of that internationally. 
even here in Australia, yes, we have a lot more support for maternal care and we have a lot more laws and provisions from employers. But still, you get to a point of your career and you have to ask the question, baby or career? You don't get to have both, you know. And I was literally pregnant when I was looking for a job and I remember the recruiters didn't say it but didn't also support as soon as they found out I was pregnant. Because in Australia, it's discrimination um, to not employ someone who's pregnant. However, if you see it from the employer's point of view, you're going to have that baby and be gone for three, six, nine months. And with or without paid maternity care, uh, which is part of our law structure here, it's not an incentive to employ someone who's pregnant when you can get somebody just as skilled who's not pregnant and who won't leave the business and who won't cost the business money. So it was the first time that I had experienced that type of discrimination. And it was very obvious, you know, because the qualifications that I bring to my work are very high standard. And so if I weren't pregnant, there'd be no question I'd be offered positions. Um, but the fact that I was pregnant meant that I wasn't given the time of day to the point one recruiter was honest with me um, and she said, yes, it's it's the law. I can't, you know, I have to put you forward. But, you know, I I know your chances are low to nil. And I was shocked. And yet shocked because it was happening to me, but not surprised that it was happening at all. Yeah, and I, it's fascinating to me to hear that that is a decision that is also needing to be made in Nigeria because I know that your business culture is emerging and more and more women are taking more and more leadership positions which is amazing. It's fantastic. And yet still, we have to give up something in order to take that next step forward. In order to progress in our career, we have to sacrifice significantly. And I'm so grateful to hear about what you're doing, because I think it's valuable. Tell me a little bit more then about the services that you're offering. What is Pregify doing to make significant changes in this space? Okay, so um, thank you very much because at Pregify, our single goal is to limit the challenges women go through during pregnancy and early childcare. Not that we are going to eliminate this completely, but we have them to manage it to a certain degree that will help them to keep what they are doing while they are also raising a family. And some of the things that we do to achieve this is to educate women. If you are planning to raise a family anytime soon, talk to us so that we can help you plan this pregnancy ahead. Some of the things that make women lose a lot while they are pregnant is because of poor planning. Some people don't plan at all in Nigeria. They just wake up, find out that, oh, I've missed my period, and that's it. 
I believe that if women start planning towards their pregnancy, talk to, uh, have a business or career coach that can talk to them about their long-term, short-term, medium and long-term goals and how to navigate it, then or someone that can help them to look into their business and structure it in such a way that the business can actually function without them if they need to go away during pregnancy or childcare. So these are some of the things that we offer them during the preconception care that we offer them, not just about screening them, their health. We go into their careers to be sure that this woman is not going to lose out entirely. But some of them that are working, some of them they have a company policy that they have never read. So we go through the company policy and look at it and say, what does this company policy say about maternity leave, about pregnancy? I find that some of them had this clause that says, don't get pregnant before six months of working with us or before one year of working with us, else you'll not be able to assess a maternal welfare. And as sad as it sounds, these are things that you need to consider if you are still in Nigeria and work in such companies and you need to keep to it for you to be able to keep your job safe and enjoy your pregnancy and motherhood. Another thing that we do for them is that when these women are pregnant, we know that time is a constraint for them. So we offer them the mobile stroke online accidental care where we get them because Pregnancy education is very important to the health of the mother and the child during pregnancy. And these women, trust me, they don't even have the time to go to the hospital to sit down, listen to these teachings, and who says they must go there? So we make this um, provision for them and provide them with this same education, the same quality, and the same access. So we provide them in audio format and um, through life, week, weekly live classes, in such a way that even if they don't, they are not in the class during this station. All they need to do is if they are driving to work or they are in boat or Uber or they are at home resting, just plug on your headsets or your um, airport, listen to these stations and then ask questions in the support group or reach out to the doctors in the group and you get yourself sorted out. And I think care also do for them is that there's a lot of things that will come up in pregnancy that may not warrant to going to the hospital. And these things are things that you can quickly discuss with your two first, through the 247 online clinic that we have. So the doctor listens to you, prioritize your case as, okay, this one we can sort it out here and then sort it out so you focus on your job and your business. Or if it gets to a point like the person tried and say, ah, you know, you need to move to the hospital. This helps a lot because we have seen women who, for instance, I had a client who, who ha was having um, diarrhea in pregnancy. She didn't know how bad this is. Actually, before, this was before she contacted us. She had already lost the pregnancy at 36 weeks because of diarrhea, ordinary diarrhea, if I must put it that way. Because, because I told you my brother died of diarrhea. These are things that are avoidable. You know, so when her friends introduced her to us and I spoke to her and I told her, do you know that having an a session of ORS, oral radiation sound at home could have saved your pregnancy. If you had spoken to, because you don't have time, if you had spoken to a doctor online and said, ah, I just started stooling this morning, we just place you on ORS to rehydrate you and then monitor you and follow you up. This pregnancy would have said, so it's a, an information gap. 
With these women need to have a place where they can easily assess information, assess care, prioritize them and tell them, okay, you, please, you need to skip work today and we can write you um, this letter to give to your office and you need to see a doctor so that they don't feel like, you know, if I go to the hospital now, they will tell me it's nothing, it's nothing. So they tend to classify every challenges they have. As long as it's not bleeding or it's not very, a pain that is very intense, they classify it as nothing. So this is also what helps. And then in the long run, we also intend to have a situation where we can walk to your homes, to your offices, and carry out side lab, urinalysis, ultrasound scanning, and all those things. Um, your, take your vital signs and just let you focus. So we call it combinant care. So this is one of our meeting so long-term goals um, for the mobile clinic. Then another thing we offer them is what we call in Nigeria, Omugo service. So this Omugo service, we are launching it in February. We are doing the underground Lego paperwork, the background work and everything now, and trying to keep get the website working perfectly so that people can easily access and book for work. So what does Omugo service mean? It's simply postpartum care. In Nigeria, when a woman is pregnant, the mom start preparing to come over or the mother-in-law or the sister or the aunt, an elderly person prepares to come over to take care of this woman from delivery to at least three months. But then when you look at our environments now, not so many people are enjoying this because of the situation. Number one, some of them, they have aged mothers that are not even healthy enough to care for the baby. Then some of them, the mothers are late. Some of them, they live in a very totally different city. And, and ultimately, because women are taking up career position, the rate of mothers or mother-in-law coming over to stay for a long period of three months is declining. These women also have their job and their career path mapped out for them. And people are becoming grandmothers earlier than our mothers. So when they become grandmothers at their 40s, late 40s, early 50s, you find that they still have their whole career and they may be engaged in some social impact work that they, when they come or business, that when they come to your place, they say, I'm staying just two weeks. And two weeks is good, but it's not enough for a woman to recover after delivery. So this Omuga service is going to help these women to assess another trained elderly woman who is now professionally trained, vetted, and verified to provide the same exact filling the gap that their mom or their mother-in-law would have filled for them. So they don't feel that gap or, you know, thrown into postpartum depression due to overwhelming responsibilities and feeling lonely after delivery. So um, I believe that this service is going to make more sense in the next five years, 10 years, when people like people ahead of, immediately ahead of us are going to become grandmothers and they are, um, they are really deep in working with WHO, United Nations and consultation work and all that. So they will not even have time for this um, traditional thing that has been passed down to us. So we recruit women that are not so much gainfully employed, like the, we work with NGOs that care for widows, um, widows that are between 40 to 60 years old. So we work with those NGOs to help them to empower those widows. So we get those widows, train them and bring them in and give them source of livelihood. Staying with the family also give them a sense of belonging to the society. So it's a kind of a business and social impact um, enterprise for us. 
So we also so if we have application from regular people, even if they qualify them from age, and we have application from retirees, widows, we prioritize this second group of and the last group. So the people that they still have the chances of getting um, job out there, unlike these ones that must have left their work due to maybe my husband said I should stay at home, I shouldn't do anything, and then the husband dies and they don't have anything. They don't know where to start their career. They don't know where to do. So we take them in and make and make something out for them. So another thing that we do is because women are very concerned about what how they look what people are going to say about them. So we make provision for them that when you are done with your child, um, your pregnancy, and you have recovered, we are taking you in into our fitness club so that you can easily have a sustainable means to get your chip back and you know remain fit. So when you go back to work, people are not looking at you like, ah, after three months, you're still looking bloated. or other. Even though we preach body positivity and tell you not to listen to what people say, we still understand that this body image affects a lot of women. So we help them to work on this. If it's going to affect your self-esteem when you are being reintegrated into the society after your pregnancy, we help you to work on this to a great extent and then make it sustainable because it's going to be what you'll be able to sustain over a long period of time. And then mm. one thing I did mention is that these women that we're putting up for Omugo and then the postpartum women, we also provide a post-birth club for them where they interact with other women, share their challenges, their experiences, and get uh, mental health support and other supports. So this for the paid core paid services that we're doing at Predify. We have other services that we collaborate, like we can deliver your prenatal vitamins to your doorstep through our partners. We can give you sexual therapy during pregnancy or after delivery, because women tend to, some women tend to have challenges trying to, you know, go into sexual activity intimacy with their partner after delivery. So we help with the, um, the therapy through our partner. And then we have, Another community that you don't need to pay to join, we call it Predify Women. So this community should women, whether you're pregnant now or not, or you're postpartum or just coming. So we have varieties of activities. So other people, they share their experience. The younger ones learn from it. If the experience has a place where one of our professionals can come in and say, this thing has happened to you, but I think this is where the lesson is. And some younger person can do this instead of what you did. Then we host, we also launch an um, Instagram live where we bring up women to come up, share their experience and inspire other people. We have varieties of activities where we empower these women to rescale tech skill and other skills so that they can be the kind of women we want the society to see. Okay, so that's... Wow! <laughs> I love everything you said. This is so incredible and so needed so incredibly needed i don't even know where to begin in terms of digesting all that you've said except to say that i wish pregify were in australia i think this is a global service that we need you touched on a point which i think is interesting because it's in conflict which of my perception of what i thought so my perception of Nigeria is that it takes a village to raise a child and that 
family and community and the village are very much involved with raising the children. And you spoke of that in terms of the creche when you were a child, um, when, you know, the women would go off to work and there'd be a local community group that would take care of the small children. And I think I still have that perception and I think it's becoming outdated because, as you described, you know, there are women that are becoming grandparents younger, but they're still employed. They don't want to stop their life to take care of their children or their step-in-law children's, you know, and I get that. I understand that intimately because my own mother, uh, with my firstborn, gave up, was supposed to be three months. It ended up being nearly three years because she moved in with us and I was working. I went back to work after nine months. I had to go back to work. My postnatal experience wasn't depression. It was straight up anger and frustration. And it was very traumatic. It was extremely traumatic because I went from being an entrepreneur, very successful, 150% independent to the complete opposite. And what's not openly spoken about, and I'm, I, I talk about it all the time because I think it's important, that women, when they have their first child, go through a process of changing their identity. And I wasn't willing to give up my identity on what I built so hard to work for in my career, in my first business. And I can appreciate where Pregify's services could have helped me. Even though my mum is actually a midwife, she wasn't, she's really good when she's in the hospital delivering the babies and taking care of them as soon as they come out and the women in the hospital, but she was ill-equipped and ill-prepared once the baby was at home, not because she doesn't know how to take care of a child. She didn't know how to take care of me. And I wasn't very good at allowing her to take care of me because I was so used to being in control and independent of taking care of myself. And so that was a very big and hard and difficult experience for all of us, my husband included, because I had to learn how to be mother, mother and wife, mother, wife and entrepreneur. And it took me a long time and it wasn't until I went back to work that the pieces fell into place because so much of who I was was tied into my work. And when I say work, it's not because I love going to work. It's the use of my intellect. You know, and instead of, I used to joke that um, I wanted to use my brain for something more than learning how to brew kombucha and activate nuts. You know, something more than learning how to cook and do all of these things that just weren't important to me, but that's all I could use my brain for other than this baby that I was learning so much about, but it was all so overwhelming. And so when I returned to work and she helped me through that process, that's when things started to settle down. But it was 
it was a really big adjustment for all of us. And I'm so happy to hear how Pregify is serving the Nigerian community. Tell me your global plan. Are you looking to go Pan-Africa once you've got yourself established in Nigeria? Are you just going to spread out around the world? Please say yes. <laughs> Definitely yes. So, so the plan is to establish in Nigeria, understand the dynamics in the ecosystem, solve the local challenges. Then we are concentrating Lagos State now, but we have plans to move to two or more other cities within Nigeria. And then we go Pan-African. We have already mapped out a few, one, three, two, three countries that are of interest to us to do this. And once we're able to solve the Pan-African issue and the understand the dynamics, we should be able to, you know, a lot of black people are moving to the Western world and these people will definitely need us. So we are also making plans for that. Amazing, good, excellent, fantastic. So I love that. <laughs> Let's take a step back and think of our pregnant wife, our pregnant mother, and consider what can her spouse do to support her through her pregnancy but also in the adjustment with work postpartum what can they do okay so thank you very much for that question because it's one of the questions i love answering i've written a couple of times about this on my social media pages and uh, First of all, I use myself as an example because I feel that the support you give to a woman does not start during pregnancy. It starts before pregnancy. So instead of saying, hey, partner, I am ready to have a child, just say, let us talk to know if we are ready to have a child. We need to have the physical readiness, mental health readiness, psychological readiness, and then career readiness, and then analyze your support. These are the key areas we are interested in. So if all these are put in place, then when the woman finally gets pregnant, there should be discussion on which hospital and why, how is this baby going to be delivered, who is going to come to support us, what adjustments are you as the woman going to make in your workplace, what's your workplace adjustment? As a partner, the male partner, what's I I just not going to make in your work or business to support your wife. For instance, my husband is a businessman. So when I got pregnant, he, he, the financial responsibility of the home is his. He does the, so we have this um, involuntary understanding because let me say, because we never sat down to, you know, strategize on this. But he knows that, okay, if I go out in the day and I'm coming back, I'll call home. Um, what are we having today? We'll be able to prepare it. Should I get something on my way home? Um, gin dent in the market. So he, all those outside runs, he, he did all that. So he basically, like, this good understanding that gives you support that, okay, this person, but pregnancy comes with these hormonal changes, weaknesses that you, you tend to judge people being lazy when they are trying to even catch their breath during pregnancy. So he understood. Oh, no. 
You know, I was told after the birth of my first, I went talking about the exercise that you were talking about. This is not a vanity thing. This is this is about preservation. Um, exercise postpartum is incredibly important. And one of the things that I was stunned about was I had a um, personal trainer who told me that giving birth is the equivalent on a woman's body as a car crash and that what our bodies need to go through to heal takes time and very special, unique exercises to build up muscles that have been traumatized through the post of nine months of carrying this massive growing weight on our front. And then the process of if we give birth naturally or cesarean, you know, what that does to our bodies. You know, so forgive the interruption, but I thought that no. it, it's, an, it's very rare that husbands realise physically how traumatised a woman's body is during and post-birth yeah so so for me the main so if you need to make out time go for and answer with this your wife even if it's not every time at intervals try to understand what's happening in the pregnancy last year a woman lost her life here in lagos state during um delivery her husband was in southeastern part of nigeria she she's in she was in the western part of nigeria first pregnancy. So when they had challenges during the delivery, they kept calling because this issue of consent in Nigeria is still tied to the male partner. Even though we try to educate women, like in our pregnancy support, we educate women, this consent is yours. It is your life. You do with it what you want. But in the larger scale, because men are the one bearing the financial responsibility, they tend to have so much control over what happened during pregnancy and childbirth. So because this man was totally absent during the pregnancy period, he didn't know the peculiar challenges that the wife was having. He kept delaying and dragging the decision making and then the woman lost her life um, during the process before they could get consent and all that. And you know, the funny thing then was that immediately this woman died, this one was able to get the next available flight down to Lagos. This was someone that had stayed away through the pregnancy and during the birth of your first child. So I believe that men should be involved. Call the, even if you are not in the same location, call the hospital. There are women in my in predefined accidental group that their partners are not in Nigeria or they're in another state. But you see, because the, the, the teaching classes are online, they joined us during the teaching classes. They listen to the teachings. They send me reviews. They listen to these teachings. They make contributions. Some of these women, if they want to do something, they doesn't say, ah, I was in class. So when they say this one, you will not do it. Go <laughs> out. So, so they come to tell me that, you know, I wanted to do this, I wanted to do this thing that I not to do. And my husband insisted that I will not do it because he was in class when this was taught. So they join in with their partner, most of them, and it helps a lot. They understand the peculiarities. There are some of them that, when they complain something to us, we engage their partners too to make them understand that, okay, this is true because the woman gave consent, they engage and say, this is what is happening, and these are the options. Then another thing is to provide support. Who is going to be there? During my, um, my pregnancy, I, had, I enjoyed good support. So I want women to enjoy good support. I had cesarean section, which was elective, 
and my husband was there. He was there during the surgery. He was there during post-op. Then we had another family friend because my mom was in the eastern part and I didn't want her to come in within the first week of the surgery. I just wanted her to come in from the second week, you know, so when we must have been at home. Then we have another family friend who is a nurse. Once she finishes her work, she comes in to and help out the hospital too. And I think the hospital too, the nurses were so fantastic. Not because I was the medical doctor, but I think it's in there. So they had this mm-hmm. support they to um, people that just delivered. And then my, my husband's aunt heard that I ah, delivered. She also came in and brought food and come to keep me company because she's also a grandmother like she's of age and then so I had good support. And when I moved back home, there's this our neighbor who was also from my town. She came in, I started beating my baby before my mom joined us. Joined us. So this is the kind of support that all mm. these people helped me. We did they help me because of me because I, I literally moved into Lagos in They helped me because of my husband. My husband had good relationship with them. So so it's mm. a kind of way that your wife is pregnant, even if there is no immediate support from maybe the mom or someone else, try to get people from your circle to fill in the gap while you sort it out. This is because mm. get organizations like Predify, or if you cannot afford organization uh, services like the one we offer at Predify, make this um, local arrangement to ease the burden for your wife. And then if you have the financial capacity, which I actually feel that people should plan towards before the evil version to pregnancy, book services like Omugo Care that we provide at Predify so that you have a vetted carer that is standby. Once the woman is in labor, you book ahead. So this woman, this other one can come in because they are trained, they already know what to do and how to take it up with your wife and care for her and the baby so that she can rest mm. after. And I think another thing also that helped me was ways of affirmation. So this woman has gone through a lot and she it feels like she's missing out on certain things in the society. And she's trying to come to terms with the changes in her body. And so this is not a time to start throwing comments at her or trying to make her feel less of herself. So talk to her, give her a word of affirmation, reassure her eye. Thank you so much for this. You know, all those appreciation, get around long beat. It helps the psychology to feel like, oh, I'm not alone. Also, during breastfeeding, because breastfeeding can be a little bit challenging for first-time moms, especially without experience. Uh, and if they don't have that training prior to delivery, it's can, it cannot be a, a, a very challenging task for them. So you need to help them be present during breastfeeding. For me, my husband was there. Even if I'm breastfeeding at night, he wake up. He wake up. Yes, I'm very. I'm, I'm There's no way. No way. My husband's waking up for me to breastfeed. No. <laughs> Bless. I joke. I mean, he's incredibly supportive in every other way, but there's nothing for him to do, and he's like, he's not allowed to touch the region. It's not his zone anymore. It's the baby's. <laughs> but in every other way, I mean, he was there for the birth. Um, he caught both of our sons. Um, and, you know, I think on that point, men need to be in the delivery room. 
whether cesarean or natural, witnessing your wife give birth changes a man. Because if they can see what a woman goes through to give birth, you are irrevocably changed. My husband was changed um, from that to see what I could withstand in that process. I was completely natural, drug-free water birth, and it was the first birth was very fast. The second one was um, very long, and yet both of them drug-free, both incredible experiences. And even though I had to have surgery post-birth because I had some complications that I was already aware of, to your antenatal, you know, be prepared thing is so essential because I knew how to prepare for the second in a way that I wasn't able to prepare for the first. So I was able to get the necessary care for my second that I didn't get that heavily impacted my first. So I didn't get postnatal depression or anger for my second because I knew what was going to happen. But so did everybody else and we were better prepared But my husband was so hands-on right from the get-go. And I think that I I have to ask you, is there a shift happening culturally where men are wanting to be more hands-on or is it still something that has to grow and develop? Um, I think there's a shift happening, especially in the elite community because they have this understanding, not just not the top top elite like the middle class, they now have this understanding, they are more educated, some of them are beginning to drop the patriarchal um, belief they have and know that these responsibilities are ours and we need to make it work. So telling people around me, I, I believe that there is some sort of adjustment that's happening, even though it's not so widely circulated now, but I believe that with time, it's going to get to a point where men see that this family we're about to raise is ours, and we need to plan, I need to be um, available. And I also feel that the social media is also impacting this because you see people share their experiences, then you see some young adults come up to say, I don't owe my dad anything, I don't owe this anything because they were never there for me. And the young people are now beginning to say, is that serious? Uh, you need to get involved. If I don't want these kids to grow up tomorrow and resent me and get someone attached to their mothers, we need to start doing something. And I believe this movement mm. gets widely spread out as time goes by. Yeah, I think that even in Australia, there's still um, a stigma against um, men being um, involved and there's a lot of um, media around, well, it's the woman's responsibility, she's the primary caregiver, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Thankfully, that is shifting here and there's more and more talk of men being more involved, taking paternity leave from work. There are employers who are 
allowing for paternity leave, not just maternal leave for the women, but for for fathers yeah. as well. So on that point, I mean, I asked you about what can the spouse do, but what can employers in Nigeria do? Surely a lot more. Yes. Okay, so let me not say they are not doing um, anything. So last week we raised a discussion in the Pregify Women group and we allowed people to, because I've been creating content on workplace and pregnancy recently, so we raised the topic in the group and women were sharing their experience and we had this ugly part of them that we have people that had it, okay, the employer is doing it, then we have these people that they are enjoying themselves, so share people that work with the government and then some top um, private firms, they enjoy their maternity leave for up to three to six months. They get paid. They have in office crash that the company is paying for. Then some of them, they have increase that they pay 50 50 or the company subsidizes it for them. And then they have some arrangements with its resumption time and leave time, um, closed time at the office. But then these are just a handful of women. Majority of women in Nigeria who are gainfully employed do not enjoy this. In fact, some of them don't even, some companies don't have provision for pregnancy or maternity leave. It's not part of their provision. Some of them have it and it's conditional. Like I've already said, some will tell you six months, if you don't work six months, but usually one year, you won't be able to assess paid leave. And then there's this woman that said that. Even if you have worked for three years in her office and you get pregnant, just make sure you save enough money to go and start what, what else or get another job because as soon as they give you that paid leave, they'll be paying you for three months, but you cannot come back to that same job again. So these are issues wow. that so these are issues that the government needs to come in because these employers they need something to shake me them. They need mm. it's not out we saying it someone needs to enforce these policies that yeah employers should make this provision and it should be enforced so that these companies women can actually sue them because they are backed up by law but if there is no law in place that is compelling these people to do the right thing they get away with a lot of things in 2020 when i came up on twitter a woman got pregnant her colleagues snitched to the HR that she was pregnant, and then on her way home, she got her letter, her sack letter. I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. Wow. I mean, so, that is such a terrifying... I mean, it's it's hard enough to go through the changes of pregnancy, but to also do so with the strain of either finding another job while pregnant or facing birth unemployed and in financial challenge because of it, it's such a stress that no woman should endure, no family should endure. And yes, I can see it from the employer's point of view because it's a, it's a cost, it's an expense, but at the same time, that 
asset, that resource that has been employed there for so long is still going to be a resource and an asset post-birth, you know, and it, it uh, leaves me speechless that that sort of stuff happens. So we've had an amazing conversation and I feel like we could talk all night. You've got work to do today. I've got a family out there and a baby that actually needs to be put to sleep. That said, I still want to hear from you in terms of all of the things that you're working towards. How can our community, how can my network get behind you and support what you're doing? What does Pregify, what do you need? What are the challenges that you need support to solve? Okay, thank you very much for this. Um, so at Pregify currently, we we are basically surviving because of the goodwill of people that are working with us because we are we are not financially buoyant now. And uh, so people that are working with us are people that say, you see, I've listened to your story and I think I want to be part of this, even though there's no monetary compensation now, I believe that we are building something great and we are doing this. Sometimes it hurts me when I look at the effort they are putting in and the time they are sacrificing the commitment and we're not giving anything in return monetarily. And so if we are able to get connected with funding or grants to help us move forward, that's going to be a plus for us to help us move you know, faster. Because some of the things that is delaying us is because we're trying to strap funds and you know to get things done. Another thing that we need now is mentorship. We need women who have been there, who has access to the kind of community that we want to serve. So coming to Pregify um, to mentor us, in, whether it's going to be as part of our advisory board to help us to navigate the stage we're in, help us to gain access to the kind of community that we want, because these services is not for every woman out there. We need to be sincere about this. It's for a certain class of women who really need it. And we need access to these communities. So we need women who are in these communities to help us to get access to these kind of communities. We, we also need visibility for people to host us. The way you're hosting me on your podcast, I want people to host us today, come to um, talk on the Guardian newspaper, what we do, about or Vanguard, or come on channels, television, and tell us what you do and how it's impacting, or, you know, I'm going to host you. I have one million uh, women following me on Instagram, Facebook, and I want you to come up to talk about Predify and tell them how it's going to benefit them. So we need that visibility. We need it um, mm -hmm. now as much as we need funding and we need access to these communities. We need that visibility too. And then, yeah, so I think that's basically for now what we need. Mm. Look, I think that that... That's the situation for every startup is that, you know, the, the thing that we're most challenged by is investment. And I have no doubt that the continued exposure, not just from my podcast and from our LinkedIn communities, but as you grow and establish and, and reach out and achieve more PR, it's going to grow. And 
it's interesting to see how even just my last interview the with divine gift how much attention that's garnered for him and that's very encouraging for all startups so i i hope Hope, hope, hope that somebody in our community, um, many people in our community reach out, connect and support you in every which way possible. And I know that with the plethora of incredibly talented women that we have in our networks that you're going to get support and grow and grow and grow. So we are at the end of our um, interview, but let me flip it for you now, as a, an emotional intelligence coach, management consultant, business advisor and all things, you know, under that umbrella, do you have a question for me? I mean, I know that this um, podcast, An African's Queen, is new and different. I'm certainly, you know, growing in my audience and followers as well. What question would you have for me? Okay, so uh, so the table has turned. <laughs> okay, so yes, <laughs> it has. I don't mind, um, but I just feel like when I open the door to this podcast, I've been asked a million questions in DMs, and it's been fabulous. But often my guests go, "But I want to ask you a question. Is that okay?" <laughs> And of course it is. So now I've included it as part of the format because I think that if you've got the question, there's bound to be people in our audiences that want to know the same question. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, so thank you for the opportunity uh, to be on your, your, this end and you on the other end. So I want to ask, I'm being curious about this because if I look within my circle. My best friend is in Hungary now. She has left the country. Most of my colleagues have left or they are at the tail bottom of finishing their um, process of leaving the country. So it's kind of a, a jackpot wave in the country. And then I read your post and everything you say, you want to relocate it back to Nigeria, to Lagos or Abuja. And the first time I look at her, like, does this woman know what she's saying? This <laughs> white <laughs> <I> go crazy. <laughs> does she know what she's doing? <laughs> what, is she, what is she coming back to, to live in Australia where I, um, most people really want to go to? And then she's coming back to Nigeria. So I want to know what's the motivation because someone like me, I have my own motivation of staying back in Nigeria. I actually wanted to go to the UK. I've already booked for my exam, but then I canceled everything to stay back and build my business because mm. it's a business that is going to help Nigerian women a lot. So I've, I'm staying back, I have my motivation. But maybe your own motivation can add to my motivation because when I see mm. you on the other side of where people are running to, coming back to where we are literally hiding to say that we're staying back. So I want to, what's your motivation? And then this motivation, is it strong enough to keep you in business or whatever your official endeavor is in Nigeria? Mm. Then I also want to know what, what, I don't want to discuss what you are coming back to do in Nigeria, but I want to know, have you read 
policies around what you want to do in Nigeria. <laughs> is that going to be for you? Okay. All right. So there's three parts to this question. Um, you know, the question really is why? Why am I doing this? What madness have I um, decided? First and foremost, my husband is a Yoruba man. We've been together 13 years this year. Far out. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and so he and I met in Cambodia. He was a professional football player and I was teaching English at that time. And for me, I was a professional traveller. I Prior to Cambodia, I was um, teaching in China. Before that, I spent some time, a little bit of time teaching in Thailand. Before that, I was in um, Canada and the US. I wasn't teaching then, I was just traveling and working. But for me, my spirit is other cultures. What makes my heart sing so loud? I can't sing, I can't carry a tune. You will not get me singing. But what makes my heart sing? is travel, is other cultures, is other languages, experiencing the way of life in other places. And it is so much a part of who I am that when I relocated back to Australia from Cambodia, leaving my then fiancé in um, Cambodia, it, we were apart. We were together for 10 months when we got engaged and I came back to Australia, but we were actually apart for 13 months in order to go through the process of applying for the partner visa and everything that came with it. The year and a bit of me being here without him was a massive reverse culture shock adjustment. I hated being back in Australia and I'm still not happy about being here because I am Australian and because this is always going to be my country and because this country, yes, I will not sugarcoat it. It is, it is a fortunate country in that there are provisions and things that get taken care of, health, education. However, it's an extremely materialistic country. It's everybody is in it for themselves and it's very selfish and self-orientated. Community here isn't as I perceive it to be with the surrounds of my husband's family, he, like yourself, has many siblings. There's seven or eight of them in total, and they're very close. And I don't have that. You know, yes, I have my mum, and I'm my brother, one of my brothers is an hour away, one of my sisters is two hours away, but I don't have a relationship with the other two. And that's really, really challenging. You know, my mum lives in another state. So I don't have community here as I would have in 
Lagos with my husband's family. But also, this country is extremely bureaucratic and expensive. And it is very difficult and extremely expensive to run a business here because you have to account for every bloody law under the sun you can imagine. There are laws upon laws upon laws upon laws, and all it does is confound you and spend forever getting anything done. To get to buy a house, um, you need to save sort of up to 20% of the loan amount. Well, houses here start, and I'm saying start, at half a million Australian dollars. And that's for a decent home. Like for an apartment, you're still spending about that. But you still have to have 20% of that to get a halfway decent loan. But the interest will kill you. And so to get ahead here, it's really bloody hard. And people underestimate how difficult it is. Yes, we have services. We have a government that <laughs> has to be transparent about how they spend their money. They, we have a government that is filled with career politicians who have never run a business, who know two parts of F all about how to run the country like a company, which is what it needs. And yet, I find that opportunities aren't opportune here. When we look ahead to Nigeria and we look at the trend of what's happening in Africa and how it is waking up to its core strengths and the young people who are taking advantage of their increased levels of education and increased levels of exposure of social media, we see a significant shift where there will be an out with the old and in with the new. And it's going to be ugly for a while and it's going to be uncomfortable, but just like a, sh a snake will shed its skin, so true will Africa. And African nations will be a force to reckon with. There is a shitload of money in Nigeria. There are people who aren't thinking about how best to service. And yet there are people like yourself who are choosing not to japa. We found opportunity as possible because it was easier for us to take Australian money and spend it on Nira to buy land. And so we have several different blocks of land. We have a house that's half built. We have a farm that's half established. We're still, you know, building that farm from here. But we're able to employ people there. We're able to build the economy there. And that's all my husband's doing. You know, he goes to work and all his money, really in Australia, goes to bills. It doesn't achieve anything. But what we can do is take what's 
that little bit that's left over and convert it into Nira and do something significant with it. And if we are able to employ people there to work on the farm, that then helps his family so that we don't have to financially support them because they're working and they're earning because otherwise we would be sending money constantly, you know, paying for the nieces and nephews' education, which we've been doing for years, you know, and on top of that he gets I don't know how many calls a day from people asking for money. You know, Bross, can you help me out with this? You know, oh, I'm, I'm, I need this, or there's medical care for this one, or someone's mum's sick and they need medicine. He gets those calls every single day, not just from one or two, sometimes five, sometimes ten messages, voice messages on WhatsApp every single day. And he is such a beautiful, kind, loving spirit that he wants to help everybody. And the real challenge has been to teach him how to say no, because the obligation that he feels for people who raised him up and supported him through his football career and helped him get out of the country, you know, and there is this sense of obligation of I must repay. But what I'm using my business acumen to help him to appreciate is you need to teach people to fish so they can feed themselves. Don't just sell them fish. And by supporting them to understand how to farm in our particular situation, you know, they're learning skills, but they're also getting an income and they're able to take care of themselves and their family and not be reliant on handouts. We want to give them a hand up, not a handout. We're not looking for we don't want to be aid providers. You know, after living in Cambodia and seeing how the not-for-profits and the NGOs misuse funds in Cambodia, I'm very careful about where we put money for not-for-profits and, and NGOs because I've seen how it's they buy Lexuses, cars, instead of helping the people they're supposed to help. And so when I started researching charity, I became very clear that when we look to support people, it will be through education. It will be through skills. It will be training. And part of that is our long-term legacy. Um, it's funny, I haven't spoken about this publicly, so I'm a little bit shy about it, actually, but it's something that we both deeply, deeply care about. When, when Dowda went through his football career um, and was first leaving the country, he got scammed and he got dumped in Dubai and then he finally got to Vietnam and he was given an opportunity to play in Thailand and unfortunately he got scammed again. And he ended up getting into Cambodia and through a series of misfortunes got stuck there and overstayed his visa and he couldn't leave. Now, this is so common in young footballers and they just get sold the dream. 
what we want to do is combine his football skills, his skill for playing, coaching, mentoring, but also management, combine that with my business acumen and my MBA and my education and put it into a business academy that teaches young boys and girls football, supports them and helps them understand the industry, manages their careers, but at the same time teaches them business skills. So instead of doing a high school diploma or whatever the level of qualification is you call it, we're looking to teach young boys and girls core business skills so that every single year they get more and more knowledge and experience, but by the time they graduate, they graduate with a business, with employees if that's applicable, and that they know when they're making the football money because they're successful footballers, that that money is going back into their enterprise, back into their community, back to their families, and building people up, but also through the philanthropic cycle, they pay it forward. So if their education is sponsored to get into the academy, then when they are successful, they repay it by sponsoring the next child through the same program. And in this way that they are paying forward the next generation of success the next level of entrepreneurialism because Nigerians are naturally entrepreneurial. And what we want to do, our life legacy, is to make sure that we provide these young footballers with the opportunity to be successful in their careers as footballers, but when they're done playing football, they've already got a business. They've already got something that they can fall back on because career sports people often are destitute. They've spent the money on the Maseratis and they haven't built a legacy. They haven't got investments. And I feel so passionate about this because I wish I had been taught business acumen when I was in high school. So you can appreciate that the reason we want to come back is because there's opportunity there that in Australia is simply too hard to do because Australia doesn't need what we could give. The farm is just our first business. We have other environmentally sustainable ideas for ways in which to improve um, Lagos. When I was there, I was horrified by the amount of rubbish that was strewn everywhere. Um, and yet I know what we can do to solve that problem. I know how we can make that into businesses. You know, there are just there are just ideas that he and I have that are possible if we're there. But if we're still here, it can't happen. Australia doesn't need us. You know, and that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> but hopefully that helps you understand the why. You need to stay in Nigeria. You need to keep doing what you're doing because 
It's not just Nigeria that needs you. Africa needs you. And the future generations need you there. Thank you so much. Thank you for the for sharing your story, your story wholeheartedly. Like it's quite inspiring. You know, seeing someone on the other side trying to come in to help solve the issues that we're having here in Nigeria is a motivation for me. Like my mentor told me in June last year when I was still contemplating UK or Nigeria, even though I didn't want to go to the UK, but the wave was getting to me. He told me. People that are going to the UK are people that probably doesn't have, that do not have any plan, the kind of idea and plan that I have. These are people that they have not figured it out and they just want to go there, cover themselves off in the nine to five while they figure themselves out. But here I am, I have a beautiful idea that has a beautiful audience out there and I, I can just put in the work and make it work. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for the and I can't wait to have you in Nigeria. And okay, so I can't wait to be there. <laughs> Tell me something. What? Where would you take me? What would you show me when we're there? So in Lagos here, there's a lot of places you may want to go to. So we have the conservation center. We have the beaches. We have. So you also. I know you also want to go and experience this long. Because we have in Lagos, the Makoko area, and see what life on the mainland is and what life on the island is. Because Lagos is not just about the island. And then you also want to, you know, go out in the night and see what life in the night looks like in Lagos. Yes. And then there's a lot of opportunities. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Get a group of ladies together. Let's go out. Leave the babies at home. Thank you very much. <laughs> For sure. And I can certainly appreciate how, you know, even the childcare services that Pregify will offer will come in handy because I want to be working. You know, I'm looking for, yes, I'm looking for a job, but I'm also looking to provide my services. So, you know, like I would love to be able, this would be an amazing opportunity, but I would love to be able to work for a consulting firm that's there now that can utilize my services from Australia and really support that transition, not necessarily to pay for it, but to at least give me a job so that when I hit the ground, I can start work. And I, it's one less thing I need to adjust to because it's already going to be a massive cultural adjustment, not just for me, but for my boys. You know, I'm asking a seven-year-old to completely change the way he's known life. And I think that that's going to take a lot. So if I can be working, I think that that would be just one more thing that's so much easier and less stressful for me to deal with. Because at least then I can find somewhere to live close to the office. There's other things that I can consider without having that to also be a problem. But yeah. Okay, so I have one more question for you. Sure, <laughs> that's okay. So considering your expertise in coaching and business, do you work with startups? Is there a way that you work with startups? So what kind of services do you offer them? Oh, <laughs> so I haven't, I used to be a small business coach 
way back when. One of my first coaching um, niches was small business. So I have a lot of exposure and experience. I guess to answer that question, I would be more of an advisor and a mentor to small business and startup now because I do want to specialize in emotional intelligence and emotional well-being for um, business founders, business owners, but also their teams to really making sure that they're utilizing emotional intelligence to achieve high performance, whatever that is for the company. That said, I'll always give free advice. You know, I'll always be available to answer questions. Um, I love nothing more than being of service and supporting people to succeed. And, you know, I, I put this offer out to anybody, but, you know, ask me a question. Chances are I'll be able to help you or direct you. And if I don't know, I'm going to be pretty honest about saying, hey, I don't know the answer, but this person might be able to help you and I'll connect you with somebody because my core values and what I strive to help businesses live is to care, communicate, so communicating effectively, but also to collaborate, not just with each other in a team, but collaborate with your competitors in a way that builds you both up. Create partnerships and joint ventures that see everybody grow in the way that you're working with partners. So does I don't know if that answers your question or if you need to be a little bit more direct and ask me if you want me to be advisor to you. <laughs> um, but I certainly, I'm certainly engaged and involved in what you're doing and you're stuck with me now. I love what you're doing. Thank you so much. So don't worry, we talk about that off camera. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Look, like I think the startup, the startup industry um, needs a lot more mentors, a lot more support, you know, and even I could say that I'm in startup mode with this podcast, with my coaching services, because my market has changed. My market's now Nigerian businesses. And I don't know anything about Nigerian businesses. It's part of the reason why I started this podcast, because I wanted to learn and I wanted to grow, but I also wanted exposure and people to come to me with their problems so that I can show that I know a thing or two that might help. You know, or I know somebody who might be able to help. And if I can help, job done. You know, that's that makes my heart sing to know that I'm I'm fulfilling that need of me for travel by being in another country, but also I'm using my knowledge and my skills and my qualifications to well, teach people how to fish. To come back to that. You know, cliche saying. <laughs> thank you. This has been so amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for such a powerful conversation. We have spoken for a long time. It's wonderful. I'm going to really look forward to how I slice and dice this interview. Um, but thank you for gifting me with so much of your time and your passion for what you do. It's truly remarkable, and I think you should be really proud of how going and how you will grow. 
Thank you so much for the opportunity to thank you for your kind words. Thank you for the encouragement. And I look forward to doing more and more things with you. Yeah, for sure. All right. Bye for now.